the sun doesn't shine anywhere at 4 a.m. in the morning. But that doesn't stop you from getting up and getting your day started. Imagine a watch that's powered by the movement of your body. A man. A man in his truck. Acompaña tu Coca-Cola con lo mejor. Busca en los supermercados participantes tu... Uh, what was that? Sorry, I was thinking in Spanish. She was a dame. They don't make them like her anymore. We salute our beer-drinking, flag-waving, real American listeners. This program is designed to offer you accurate information about company policies and procedures, benefit packages, performance reviews, training, and education opportunities. What are the biggest culprits of chronic inflammation? Hi, how may I help you? Para Español, Marquil Nueve. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, The employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt-sized company from small 16 employees to extra-large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. This is part two of Jeff's interview with Dan Hurst. You will want to listen to part one, but for now, let's listen as Dan continues his story discussing e-learning voiceovers. Yeah, how did you, I'm, I'm interested in, because uh, I've dabbled, uh, as we talked about before we went uh, live, uh, I just finished a semester teaching at the KU Business School in the undergraduate program, and I've also dabbled in the e-learning space. So how did you get involved in the e-learning? And I, I'm assuming it's like evergreen contact, you re, uh, con content, I mean, you record it and it's out there until it gets re-recorded. But tell me, tell me more about the e-learning piece and how you got into it. The e-learning is one of my favorite things to do. Um, I, I love doing it. Be, for one thing, it's very lucrative. <laughs> so, of course, you would love that. Uh, I, I hate doing audiobooks. I'll never do another audiobook in my life. I just hated it. I've only done one, and uh, that was one too many. Was it your own book? or No, no. It was, uh, it, was a, it was a fiction, and it was, by the time it was over with, it was something like three and a half hours long. You know, it was, it was a big book. And I just, I just hated it. Um, and it, it, it just doesn't pay well. Audiobooks don't pay well. And, uh, but e-learning on the other hand does. And it's, um, and I don't know why there's such a, uh, uh, why it's so different, but it, it is. And I like working with, uh, with e-learning people because e-learning people don't know my business. They don't, they don't understand the voiceover business. So they just want somebody to do it and they don't want to have to hold somebody's hand and train them. And, and, and so just do the job, do it right, you know, charge me a fair price and, you know, let's, let's move on with it. And so once they start working with people like that, I mean, I have clients, I have e-learning clients that I've been working with for, oh my gosh, 12 years, almost 15 years. Uh, I have regular e-learning clients and those usually come by referral. It's, it's one of those things like a lot of e-learning because you, and you're familiar with this as, as the e-learning developers, a lot of them are freelance. And so they'll, they'll have a project, a company will hire them to do something and, and uh, they'll say, okay, we need to, to get this recorded. And can we get a sample of it? Do you know anybody? Yeah, I do. And uh, so they'll send it to me. And so now I picked up another client and it just kind of, it grows, grows like that. It's just, it's mostly word of mouth, mostly referral. It's almost impossible to market for e-learning because the people that you actually contact are either freelancers or they don't, they're not decision makers on, on what voice to use. So it's very, very difficult to really market yourself in e-learning. It almost always has to be by referral. Interestingly enough about e-learning, for anybody who might be listening that's interested in doing voiceover work, most people think that most of the all voiceover work or most voiceover work 
comes from LA or New York. And I don't ever see any e-learning from, from LA or from New York. It's from other businesses, you know, that are, that have their corporate headquarters in other places um, or their production houses in other places. And so e-learning is, is one of those great businesses to get in. It's also a great line of work to get into in the voiceover industry. If you don't have a lot of experience, because it's tough to break into the commercial side of it, at least to, to make enough money in commercials, unless you get to the to the big business. But e-learning, you can get into it right away. And like I said, you're dealing with people who just just do it. Don't bother me with you know all of the details, and um, and we'll all be happy. So I love doing e-learning, and and I love the people that I work with. They're really really good people, and. And a lot of fun just to, to, uh, there are times I just get on the phone and we just yak about nothing and it has nothing to do with business, but it's just friends, you know, you, you become friends. So uh, the clients are basically companies that are producing content for their internal audience, their team members, or is it external or a kind of a combination of both? Yeah, it's a combination. A lot of companies will create packages that they, that they resell. And so, and by the way, that's another one of the reasons why e-learning is so good because they'll create, I do a lot of stuff, for example, for uh, sexual harassment uh, training or for security training or for uh, business ethics training. And, you know, there's just different categories. And uh, some of those things, the government mandates that people have to be trained, companies that have so many employees have to be trained every year in things like sexual harassment and, you know, bullying and things like that. And so they're always updating their material. So there are some companies that will create these packages and then they'll customize them for a client. They'll sell it to a client. Client says, okay, this is what we want to do. We want our name here. We want, you know, we need the, the voice to say this. We need, we, the term we use is different from the term that you used. And so you, you have to go through all of that and change it. And so you get more work that way because they're not going to get somebody to redo it. They're going to get somebody who could just fix the the little parts that need to be changed. And uh, they want the voice to match up, obviously. So it's it's as seamless as it can be. So, yeah. So e-learning is uh, there are clients that do that and they'll sell those packages to other businesses. Then there are some who will do it for internal training. There's a couple of companies that I do work for that they do a lot of internal training. It's CarQuest and CarQuest, because they deal with so many products and, you know, for, I mean, it's just every month they have new products. And so sometimes they have to do some training on some of these new products on how to sell them or how to present them to customers or what the usage is and, you know, that sort of thing. And so they'll do a lot of internal training. And those are usually small, small form things. They'll, they might last 20 minutes. Uh, e-learning generally is around 30 minutes to 40 minutes. There are a lot of them that will go to an hour or more, but e-learning through the years is they finally realize that, that these really long courses aren't as, as efficient. Yeah. As, more micro lesson content, you know, three yeah. to seven minute segments. Keep yeah. Attention. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, then they combine it with gaming and with quizzes and stuff like that. So it's, it's, so they're, they're getting just a little bit shorter or they have as far as what I've noticed. So those companies that have to do the internal thing, they, a lot of them have their own e-learning division, basically somebody, you know, two or three people that that's all they do. And if they need help, they can go find a freelancer and, and create their things. A lot of these are produced in India, but they're written, for example, here in the States, there are companies that hire me to voice their e-learning. And then once they get the audio, then they send it off to some other country and the other country will attach it to the program and, and fix it and make it do what it's supposed to do. And then send it back to the, to the home company and they're off and running with it. And uh, those, because it's so seamless, because everybody knows what they're supposed to do, they keep using the same people over and over and over and over again, which is good for my business. So on the voiceover, get back to that for a second. What's the craziest client request you've ever had that either did or turned down? I got a call one time from a client that said, hey, we want you to, uh, can you do Dick Vitale? And I said, no. And they said, no, no, you got to do it. We, we, we need somebody that can do D Dick Vitale. This thing goes goes to air tomorrow. And I went, I don't do Dick Vitale. Like, I can't do that voice. And they said, look, just try it. Just get close. You know, and I went, okay, I'll send you something. 
They came back a few minutes later and they said, okay, that's close, but it's, you know, try this a little bit more. We need to try that. And oh, oh criminy. So I tried it a little bit more and they came back a few hours later. Okay, look, we're changing the copy a little bit. We want you to say this. And, you know, and it's, it's just, uh, but still got to be very Dick Vital. People got to think Dick Vital in there. And I'm, oh, cripes. So I did it and uh, I saw it a few days later on the air and they had gone out and hired Dick Vital to do it. Because <laughs> I obviously couldn't do it. And so I had wasted, you know, basically yeah. a whole day trying to do something that I really couldn't do. Right. I knew I couldn't do it. And uh, they had wasted my time. And I've never heard from that client since. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> well, yeah. Last minute request. You got to do an impersonation of somebody. It's probably, uh, it's one thing if you had it in your, you know, in your repertoire. But yeah. Um, yeah. And I get it all the time. Can you do Sam Elliott? No, but here's the number you can call and get him to do it for you. Right. And, uh, you know, or, he seems or to uh, do a lot of voiceover, Sam Elliott. He does a lot of voice work. And by the way, Sam Elliott, I love Sam Elliott. I absolutely do. I think he's, I think he's, I think he's a tremendous actor for one thing, but he's just a good voice guy, but he's just a good guy. He's just, yeah. you know, he's what you see is what you get. And he used to come into Kansas city all the time when he was doing uh, beef um, beef is what's for dinner, you know, that thing. Right. And uh, he would come in and do that. And he would go, there was a, there was a guy by the name of Chris Retmer who was an engineer here and he's, he has passed on God rest his soul. But he, um, he had a, had his studio over on the West side of the plaza. And uh, he said, Hey, uh, Elliot's coming in. You want to come in and, and sit in on the session? Sure. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't I? So he came in and man, you know, and he's, he's, he's just, he, he owns the room when he walks in. First of all, it's Sam Elliott. And secondly, he's so tall. And thirdly, he's got that amazing mustache and hair. And, you know, it's just, he's just an icon, you know? And so I was just like enthralled and I'm sitting over in the corner. And so the, he goes into the booth and, uh, you know, okay, so would you, let's do this, let's do the taglines of beef. It's what's for dinner. And said, okay, now uh, let's, let's do it. Give me a little bit more uh, friendliness in it. He went, okay, beef, it's what's for dinner. And they tried different things that he would ask him, okay, let's, let's pretend that, uh, that, uh, that all your kids are just, they haven't been home for, you know, for three months and now they're coming home and they want to know what's for dinner. And you tell them beef, it's what's for dinner. And he could not get out of that one mode. Everything he did was this, it sounded exactly alike. It was the same, same voice, same character. And I learned a lot about that. I learned, you know, you are what you are, you do what you do. And, uh, and he never got ruffled, you know, he didn't, he never got upset with somebody saying, okay, let's try something different. You know, there's lots of examples of, of famous people who just got really irritated because somebody tried to get them to do something different or they didn't like the way they said something. And William Shatner is notorious for that. But uh, uh, yeah, but Sam was just even killed. He just, okay, sure. Beef. It's what's for dinner. <laughs> Kept doing it over and over again. That's funny. Uh, maybe you can give the audience one of your favorite uh, uh, voiceovers that they might be familiar with. We can go, you know, just uh, impromptu right here. Oh, okay. Okay. Here's one that I bet you've never heard, but wait, you know, that's, that's my famous line. That's the I've infomercial. Done infomercials. I've done you know, literally hundreds, probably close to a thousand infomercials. And uh, um, I, I got on the roster for a company called Bulb, Bulbhead. And uh, oh, what's the other company's name? Anyway, they, they're famous for all of their infomercials. And one of their prime writers was just this, uh, was just this young, he was just a kid growing up. And um, they had... Uh, Paddock Studios, which is here in Kansas City, they're a, a video production house, and uh, they needed somebody to who could do Spanish. They wanted a, a, an infomercial in Spanish. I had never done an infomercial in my life, and so uh, they had uh, a guy that was working for him that uh, uh, said, "Oh, I know somebody that, that does Spanish." And someone so on called me and said, "You know, would you would you be interested in doing this?" Well, sure, yeah. So I went into their studios and. Um, I, I did this, it was called the wacky vac. And it was one of those little handheld vacuums that you can clean your keyboards, you know, your, your computer keyboards and get between the cracks and crevices and everything. And so the whole thing was in Spanish and it was, it was for sale at venture. That was one of the, one of the things that they were venture. Remember the old uh, department stores, uh, yeah. venture. And uh, so, tu puedes obtener el wacky vac adventure. 
you know, and it was back and forth in English and Spanish. And I had more fun doing that. And uh, from there on, they started calling me to start doing more. And this guy was, uh, his name is, is Tim, Tim Carr. And Tim started calling me to, he was working with a couple of other guys and and they started calling me to, to do other voiceovers. And pretty soon as they grew, they got busier and busier and they were, they carved a niche for themselves. And, and now some, they're some of the biggest creatives in the industry. And so they called me to do all these things. And so uh, there's several of them running right now, different things that they do. I'm trying to remember. I just did four of them for them. Uh, one is the ID police. That's a little rollover thing that supposedly will, if you sign something, you know, and you, you, instead of tearing it up, you just roll over this permanent ink over it. And it's called the ID police. There was, oh, years ago, and you can look these up. You can look these up on YouTube. They're hilarious. Look up Bidet Buddy. Bidet, <laughs> the Bidet Buddy infomercial. And go check that out. And I laughed myself all the way to the bank on that That's one. probably a pisser, right? No, oh, yeah, I get it. I see what you did there. <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah, you talked about it several times. So uh, you grew up in Honduras. Uh, were your parents or missionaries, were they of Spanish or Hispanic uh, descent? Or no. you just had to learn the language because that was the native lang language of Honduras? They had to learn the language. My dad, who is my hero, that he's passed on, so is my mom. But uh, my dad used to say, you know, um, wanted to go to the mission field. I always wanted to go to the mission field, you know, and he said, and so he says, and I, and how I ended up in Honduras, he says, it's just a miracle. He said, because first of all, he said, when I was in college, I flunked Spanish. And then when I went to seminary, I flunked missions. So he said, and here I ended up a missionary in a Spanish country, but he had to learn the language and mom, mom learned the language and they were very proficient at it. And mom really, really proficient at it, but I just grew up with it. I mean, we just, you know, we, I had uh, three, I have three siblings and we all just grew up speaking English and Spanish together at the same time. And it was just, it was unaccented and it was just the way it was. We, we grew up with both languages. And, and the funny thing that happens now is I got this mattress company. Can I say the name of it? Yeah, I can. Serta in uh, Canada. And so they wanted to do Spanish and English commercial TV commercial for them, for the for some campaign that they were doing. And so my agent had me submit for English and for Spanish, two different auditions, one in English, one in Spanish. And they, they hired me for the Spanish one. And then I was real curious as to why they didn't hire me for the English one. And so I asked my agent, she said, let me, let me check. And so she called me back that afternoon. She was just laughing. She said, you're not going to believe this, but the client said, you just had a, you had an, you had too much of an accent in English. And so they wanted somebody who was unaccented in English. So, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, I grew up speaking both languages. And so they, they, both of them were just a natural for me for, for voiceover work to, to try either way. I wanted to touch on this too, because I, I also saw you were the PA announcer for the Kansas City Royals baseball team. So how long did you do that? And Obviously, you were the you know morning co-host on a you know morning drive radio station uh, program slot, and then I'm sure the overtime games, uh, extra innings were not favorable. Yeah, they were not. They were not friendly. Uh, yeah, I did. I did the uh, PN uh, work for 15 years out of the Royals, and uh, and David Lawrence. A lot of people will remember David Lawrence from 61 Country. David was a dear friend, and David taught me about he called it split sleeping. And he said he would sleep every day from 11 to three, whether it was AM or PM. So he would go home, go to bed at 11 AM, get up at 3 PM. Uh, at night, he'd go to bed at 11 PM and get up at 3 AM and, uh, and go to the radio station. So he'd get his eight hours sleep in every day. And, and, you know, he, he said, you've got to discipline yourself to learn to do that. And, and that's what I had to do to be able to do both morning radio and, and, uh, the Royals games. And I just, I learned to split sleep and there were days when I was a little tired, <laughs> but it was in the long run. It was really, really a lot of fun. So were you a big baseball fan then? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was, I, yeah, I loved baseball still do. I don't love it right now as much as I used to. It's Not a little the tough the Royals right are now for the Royals. Oh man. Yeah. It's, it's really embarrassing, but yeah, I, I grew up playing baseball and loved, loved it. Yeah. 
And then uh, you weren't there in '85, then probably when they won the World Series. No, I was there. The I, I was there. '85 was uh, Don. What was Don's last name? Oh shoot, he had been the announcer back in the days when they were the Kansas City A's. So he had been there a long, long time. So he worked. He got that '85 series, and he had cancer. And uh, so after the '85 series, uh, he retired, and unfortunately, he passed away the next year. Uh, then they hired somebody else to come in that year and he didn't want to do it anymore. He, he just said he couldn't do it. So the, uh, the engineer at, at that time it was KLSI. He, um, he said, his name was Freddie, Freddie Frank, Freddie Frank said, Freddie, uh, Hey Danny, he call me Danny. Hey Danny, they're looking for an announcer out at the Royals. He said, uh, you interested? And I said, well, yeah, sure. Why wouldn't I be? And, uh, he said, well, he said, uh, Put a put an audition together, and he said, and I'll take it to him. And I said, How do you do an audition for an announcer? He said, I'll oh, just make some announcements. <laughs> I went, okay, so I I, uh, I went into the studio at the radio station there and just uh, did uh, you know did a few welcome to the whatever the game, and did a uh, you know a couple of uh, now batting and, uh, and you know, just different announcements like that that they that they would normally make. And then I sent those off. And I thought, I don't know if I'll ever hear from these guys again. That afternoon, they called me and they said, would you come in for a live audition? And I went, well, yeah, absolutely. So the next day I went in, went in, they sat me down in the booth in this empty stadium and uh, had some copy for me to read. And uh, I'll never forget, I was reading the copy. George Toma, uh, the groundskeeper, was down on the field and uh, they had me introducing the uh, national anthem is what they had. And they were actually going to play. They, as a matter of fact, they played somebody doing the national anthem. And uh, so I introduced the national anthem and so forth and so on. And Toma got off of his got off of his tractor and stood at attention while we played the national anthem there. That was my first live audition, you know, at, uh, for the Royals. And that was my introduction to the company. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so they hired me. So in 87, my first gig was my first job with the Royals was opening day of 1987. And, uh, I had never done that kind of work before in my life. And I was rubber kneed. Uh, we, uh, Carl Yastrzemski was batting and I didn't, you know, everything you're given a sheet of paper with all of the names and numbers, and it's a roster of where they play. And, and, you know, it's, it's just, you have all of that information available. Well, somebody had put the wrong number down for Yastrzemski. And so, um, I called the number and somebody, the number on my page was some other player. I don't even remember who the player was, but that's who I called in to bat. And Yaz walked up to the, to the, to the batter's box. And I called in another player uh, because that's the number I had in front of me. And he puts his bat, he looks up, turns around and looks up at the up at the window and just stares at me like you moron. <laughs> what are you, what are you doing? And the, I was so embarrassed and I just, I was rubber kneed after that. I just, I could hardly walk when the game was yeah, over. Cause he probably retired shortly thereafter. Two years. I think it was two years after that. Yeah. yeah. But I, I sent him a note and you know, just sent him a note said, I am so sorry. It was first day on the job and I had the jitters and had some wrong information. And I, you know, my apologies. I didn't mean to insult you or anything like that. I never heard from him, but uh, you know, it was just, it was really embarrassing, but there were a lot of embarrassing moments out there. A lot of times when I said things on the mic that I shouldn't have. And, uh, but that happens and got in a lot of trouble uh, when the, during the, after the 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 cardinal after the series the 85 series of course it was the cardinals and the and, and and the royals a few years after that was the first time that they had interleague play and st louis came to play in kansas city i can't remember what year that was but it was a few years shortly after after the 85 series and so the place is just jam packed full of course and uh you always introduce the umpires so, you know, after you've introduced all the players and the managers and all of that stuff, then as you're getting ready to start the game, you know, um, uh, today I'm prying behind the plate of so-and-so, first base, so-and-so, second base, third base, so forth and so on. And then I said, unfortunately, Don Dinkinger couldn't be with us today. And Don <laughs> Dinkinger was the was the umpire, first base umpire at that game between the, the Royals and Cardinals, who Cardinals insist that he made a bad call. And uh, and so the whole they they believe that the whole series 
turned on that one call and that they, that ruined everything and that Don Dinkager was, was at fault for that. And I said, uh, unfortunately, Don Dinkager couldn't be with us today. Well, the whole place just erupted, you know, they're, they're laughing and Cardinals fans are booing and, and, and uh, the general manager came walking in. He said, what was that? He said, was that in your copy? And I said, no, I don't have copy for that. He said, well, don't do that. <laughs> and funny. he just was, he was really, really upset with me for doing stuff like that. But there are, there are things that you do. A lot of people don't know this, but for those announcers, Mike McCarthy is the, uh, uh, McCartney is the, uh, the announcer now has been there for, I don't know. How, he's been there longer than I was there. And, uh, uh, you you have to follow certain rules. For example, you cannot announce a batter if the batter is in the box and the pitch the pitcher is on the rubber. You just can't. It's illegal. That's a ten thousand dollar fine. And so you have to be really cognizant of those things. And uh, there were times when I just I couldn't make an announcement, and because the batter is in the box, the pitcher is on the rubber. And so somebody in in upper management would be up mad at me because I didn't call in the batter or didn't call in a player or something like that. And it was just, that's the rules of the game. You can't do it. It's just illegal. And uh, a lot of people don't know that's all those little rules that, that exist, you know, in major league baseball that even apply to the announcer. And, and uh, it's real easy to, to make a bunch of, of umpires mad. You do the, just the little thing that really makes them mad, that so gets under their skin and then you're in trouble because they're, they're going to look for a reason to throw you out of game if they can. Right. Right. There was one, there was one umpire there. His last name was Cheetah. Uh, I think Tim, Tim Cheetah, I believe. And uh, I went before every series, I'd go down and meet the umpires and talk to them and visit. And, you know, I'd, okay, is there anything that I need to know? When do you, when can I, when can I speak? When can I know? I know what the rules are and everything, but you have your own standards. What do you want? You know, so you talk to them, you get to know them a little bit. Well, this guy was just a real jerk to me. I mean, he was just a jerk. He was new. And uh, so, okay, fine. That's where you want to be. So when it came time to introduce him, I mispronounced his name, and uh, and a few, uh, oh, a few home stands later, he was back, and he was down there, and and uh, walked in to to meet him, and 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 uh, said hello, how are you? And there was a new umpire there, and uh, he said to the new umpire, he says, "Don't mess with him. He'll embarrass you." <laughs> and I said, so I had I'd gotten him, and I was real proud of that. It's funny. It's it's like the power of the pen, the, the power of the mic, right? Yeah, yeah. I had the mic. He better he better play right. Dan, I wanted to talk about. Um, uh, I know you, you've written three books. Um, um, uh, which is I, I don't know how you find time to do everything you do. And you know, I know you teach a a living power open class Bible study class. Also, um, it has more people attending than a lot of you know, uh, big churches, but I, I, one of your books, I, I'm interested to see what you, you know, why you wrote it and what was the purpose behind it, but the broken dreams shattered lives. Yeah. yeah. Broken dreams shattered lives was written because when I was serving a church down in Florida and actually even before that, there'd be situations, uh, a, a crisis in a family, uh, a death, um, a divorce, um, you know, lost job, a, a sickness of some sort, uh, a child is is sick or something, you know, just awful, awful situations that families go through. And I was always being asked, you know, is there is there something that that we could read, something that, you know, that we can just kind of help focus our lives on how, how do we deal with this this issue in our life? And I couldn't find anything. Uh, there were books that tried to address it, but they were so difficult to read. And I wanted to come up with a book that I could give to church members that were going through crisis situations that was easy to read and was a fairly quick read. It's not a, a long book at all. And uh, it's, it, it can be, the whole thing can be read probably a couple of hours at the most, maybe not even that much, but it, it, it addresses how to get past the crisis, not by ignoring it and not by minimizing it, because you have to deal with the crisis in your life. But how do you move on from that? How do you begin to see yourself in the light of that crisis and in the light of that grief process that, that many times you're going through? And really, all crisis is a grieving process. Sometimes it's a harder grief, you know, particularly if it's the death of a loved one, that sort of thing. But you know, you lose your job, you're grieving over it. Your child gets sick, you grieve over that. All of these 
processes that we have to go through to get through a crisis and to move on, not ignoring it, not not minimizing it in any way, shape, or form, but taking that those baby steps that you have to take to move on with life and put life back together again to, to some sense of normalcy. So that's where that book came from. So Broken Dreams, Shattered Lives was written actually as a way of of helping people in in my church that were going through some difficult times. And I just wanted them to have something that they could read and, and hold on to and go back to. Eventually what happened with the book, it, the book still, it's, it's amazing to me, it still sells. Um, but it was, I had a number of people that would take the book. I had a friend, Ricky uh, Stengel, who would take the book and he had a prison ministry and he would take, he would take a case of books and go into prison and hand those books out. And uh, there were other people who would take the book and put put the books in homeless shelters, or not homeless shelters, but women's shelters, uh, and just give the books out to to women in those in those shelters to help them discover that there is life after a crisis, and this is how you get to that. So that was the purpose of the book, and uh, it has since then kind of taken on a life of its own. And we're getting ready to re uh, do a third edition of it uh, because there's still. There's still a demand for, which kind of surprises me. But yeah, that's that's where that book came from. Yeah, and I and I didn't know that this was a part of it too. I know we talked about the importance of uh, mental health and how the pandemic really sh- uh, shown a, a spotlight on on people and how they dealt with the pandemic. And you know, we're social beings, and we had to be you know um, locked down and things like that. But I read a little bit that you suffered a little bit of depression as a teenager. Was that part of that? To, was it a, a process for you to help others based on your experience with, with depression possibly? Uh, absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I often say when I go and speak at rotaries and different places that invite me to come and speak, one of the things that we talk about is in, in some of the speeches that I do is that, you know, there are, there are basically certain characteristics that you have that make you who you are, that make you vital to other people and, and important in other people's lives. And one of those characteristics, for example, is compassion. Well, you're not born compassionate. You've never met a compassionate baby in your life. Um, it, but compassion is something that you learned because somebody was compassionate with you or to you at a time when you really, really needed it. And and you begin to you begin to connect with people on the basis of your suffering, really. I mean, that's where you can really, really focus in and touch people's lives because you've been through some sort of a, a difficult situation in your own life that you can somehow relate to that person. And so, and, and so when I was a boy, I was adopted. My parents adopted me uh, in, um, in, in, in Fort Worth, Texas, right before they went to the mission field. And um, like I said, I was 10 months old when they went to the mission field, but they adopted me and they adopted me. I didn't know this until about three, three or four years ago. Uh, but it was a very, very brutal, difficult situation uh, in with my birth family, and uh, my my it wasn't my father because I was I was born to a 16 year old girl uh, who was not married, obviously, but her parents made her give me away for adoption. So my parents adopted me, and in her situation, she was so mad at her parents for that she left home and got married, married and and uh, had three kids. Her first husband uh, stole some money from an organized crime group, apparently quite a bit of money, and they came looking for him and murdered him. They wanted the money back, and they had hidden the money, I guess, in banks. And so my birth mother didn't really – she wasn't going to give that money up because she needed it. She was without – I mean, they had murdered her husband, and she felt like she wasn't giving them that money. They murdered her. And then she had gotten married, by the way, again – uh, after her first husband had been killed. And so they came after the second husband, assuming that he knew where all the money was or had the money. And uh, he said he didn't have it. He couldn't give it to them. And they murdered him. Well, that was the kind of situation that I was, that I would have been living in down in Texas. And somehow or other, my parents adopted me, took me home and to Honduras. And I started growing up in Honduras. Well, then my mom and dad figured out they could have kids. They say, don't drink the water. Well, that's why. And so they, mom got pregnant three times, by by the way, she had three children 
And so all of a sudden, in my nine-year-old mind, I started dealing with this. How could my parents love me as much as they love their own flesh and blood? I mean, I knew I was adopted. I knew my story uh, to a degree. I mean, I didn't know about the teenage girl, but I knew I was adopted. And, uh, but you know, how could they love me as much as their own flesh and blood? And, and, and I I have three siblings and and we're all very close, by the way, I I love them dearly. And I love to tell them this story just to rub it in because I asked my mom, mom, how could you possibly love me as much, you know, as, as, as you love your own children that, that were born to you. And she got down on her knees and put her arms around me. And she said, Danny, she called me Danny. She said, Danny, she said, we chose you. We had them. <laughs> that was that was just the, the greatest line. And I've used that with my siblings so many times just to make them understand where, you know, the pecking order here. Right. But anyway, I, I still struggled with that idea that that yeah. that I was I was a mistake. You know, I was born to a to a I knew the girl was young and that she wasn't married and that I was a mistake. And so for about 10 years, I just really struggled with that, even to the point of trying to commit suicide a couple of times. And it was just a really difficult thing for me to go through. And it was wasn't until I was um, well, I was in college uh, and I was at William Jewell College at that time. And this guy came and, and he started talking to me about, you know, this personal value, like, who are you and why do you exist? There's never been anybody in the world like you. You're one of a kind, never will be anybody else in the world like you. Why are you, why are you like you are? There has to be a reason for that. There must be a purpose and a plan for your life for that. And and I wasn't really a person of faith at that point. But when he said that, you know, like, if you believe in God, and I did, I believe there was a God. I mean, why wouldn't there be? And, um, but then it, it, he, he shared a, a verse with me that says, you know, you're worthy of Lord to receive glory and honor and power for you have created all things and for your purpose, they are and were created. And when I heard that it, there was this, it was like this light went off in my head. I mean, it was like a thunderbolt. I, I mean, a, a lightning bolt that went off in my head. It was just like, wow, I'm not an accident. I was created, you know, I'm, I'm unique and I began to play that over and over and over in my mind. And I began to come to this realization that I'm not defined by my by my circumstances. I'm defined by my calling of who I am and what I'm supposed to do in life and what I'm supposed to be. That's who I am, not my circumstances. I am not my circumstances. And so, yeah, so that played a big part in the writing of that book because it was a, this realization that, you can't define yourself by the loss. You can't define yourself by your failure. You can't define yourself by the critical situations in your life. You are this individual that can use those situations to shape you and to learn from and may even help other people, but you are not those things. And so uh, that's really where that, that motivation came. And part of it, so you're right, part of the reason for the book was to help people understand you've got to move beyond your crisis because you are not your crisis. Well, I wasn't adopted, but it seems not typical that the parents would tell you that you're adopted at such an early age. But I, and do you think that was a good thing? I mean, it, it is a thing, no matter good or bad mm-hmm. is how we judge it though. But I mean, this in hindsight was a good knowing you were adopted at, at such a young age. Yeah, I do. And and I'm glad my parents told me. I'm glad I knew all along because it helped shape my understanding that I am an individual that um, that has uh, that discovery that I was created, that I have a purpose and a plan for my life was was so life transforming. And if I had not grown up knowing that I was adopted, I never would have gotten to that point, I don't think. Uh, so yeah, I'm glad, um, I have a couple of adopted grandchildren. They're very open with them about it and I'm glad they are. And, uh, but every adopted child, I'm not going to say every adopted child, but in my experience, most adopted children go through an identity crisis, similar to what I, what I went through, maybe not to that extreme, but they go through this crisis because they have no history. You know, they, if it's not an open adoption where they know their, their birth parents, that sort of thing. Uh, so, and it, Texas didn't have open adoption. Uh, so I didn't know anything about my history. So I was basically without history. I, I didn't have a past that I could look back and say, that's where I came from. All I knew was that I had been born accidentally 
by a girl that got pregnant when she shouldn't have. And that was, that was the extent of my history. And so it really, I really, really struggled with that um, because I didn't have, I didn't know who I was. I didn't, didn't have an identity. That's why grandparents and I, boy, I, I really hammer this to these days. Grandparents are so important because they're part of a child's history. They're, they're an identity. That's why children love to talk to their grandparents because their grandparents help them to identify who they are and where they came from and what their history is all about. You know, I, I, I say this, you know, children, grandkids and grandparents are best friends for two reasons. One, because they have a common enemy. And two, because there's a history that they can teach those children that gives them an identity and gives them a place in this world. And so it was It was important, I think, for me. I didn't want to know who my birth parents were and what my history was. It wasn't important to me, but my, my kids wanted to know. They wanted to know if, hey, dad, when we get old, are we going to be insane like you are? And so it was, you know, they wanted to know about my history. And I realized I owe them that. I owe them a history. You know, they, all they had was the history on my wife's side, but they didn't have my history. I mean, they love my my family, my my adopted family. I love them deeply. I They are my family. My mom and my dad were my mom and dad. I still think of them that way. I think of my sister and my and my two brothers as my sister and my two brothers. And I love them that way. But I began to realize that I did have a history. I was, I did have an identity that, um, uh, that I needed to know about. And so when my kids did the DNA thing and found my, my birth family, uh, that was, that was a pretty remarkable thing. And just a few weeks ago, my half sister, uh, her name is Donna came up from Texas and spent the weekend with us. And it was so much fun. We just had a great, great time, but she gave me a lot of that history. I learned so much about, about my birth family and, and, uh, the horrible things that they had to go through that I was spared. And so I'm, I'm deeply grateful for that. But at the same time, it was important to, to learn all of those things. Well, Dan, you've been fantastic. I'd like to end with one uh, question I always uh, ask a guest because I'm always empathetic, uh, very empathetic to uh, it's, it's May of 2023 right now, May 17th. So people are graduating from college this month. They're going out for their professional career. So uh, what kind of sage advice would you have to uh, somebody that uh, just walked down the uh, Hill at KU or uh, Tiger Stadium in Mizzou or any other college in terms of uh, what they should do professionally? I think I think it all comes back. We've actually kind of talked about this a little bit. Find out who you are, you know, your identity. What did it what what is it that makes you you not what you do, but what makes you you? Because when you discover who you are as a person, as an individual that has reason to exist, that is not a mistake, that is part of a greater plan, then that will make a big difference on what you do. And I am convinced that one of the reasons that I've been successful in voiceovers and was successful in radio was because I realized I, I, I came to this discovery of who I am and what I have to offer, what I what what kind of a difference can I make in people's lives and make their lives better for it. And so it was it was this discovery of myself, my, my being and knowing who I was and what I'm capable of doing and what I can do and being willing to take that risk made all the difference in the world. Uh, so, yeah. So if you're starting out your, your career, make sure that you know who you are and what you are actually capable of doing. Uh, and you don't know what you're capable of doing until you, you go through the trials and the errors and make those things. But you're going to make mistakes along the way. But if you know who you are and you know what you are capable of, at least know, think you know what you're capable of, it's going to make all of those those things that happen uh, so much more palatable. And it's like uh, Thomas Edison failed, what, some 6,000 times before he actually got a light bulb to work. And every time he failed... I think this is uh, this is just an old wives' tale, but I mean it makes sense. He said, "Ah, oh, that's another way I can't do it." And so it was it was just this discovery that he he knew he could do it. He knew that there was something there. He knew he had the capacity and the intelligence to do it. 
And so he just kept on and kept on and kept on. And he learned from his mistakes. And uh, and that's how he discovered success. There is no success without failure. And so get your failures out of the way and and learn to be successful. Dan, you're phenomenal. You, what you've done for the Kansas City community in terms of when you were uh, at KUDL and uh, all the joy you brought to people and your books and your the Living Power Bible study class and uh, just phenomenal. Um, well, thank I you. I think the only people that don't like you are St. Louis Cardinal fans. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I love St. Louis. I was a huge Cardinals fan as a boy, by the way. Uh, I grew up uh, thinking the Cardinals and the and the Pittsburgh Pirates. They were it, man. I love them. You know, and I still I still have a place in my heart Roberto for them. Clemente back in the- yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mi hermano. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Dan, thank you so much for being on. The, on the, thank I'm you. humbled that you. Uh, you spent time with me and uh, our listeners uh, will, will love you too. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. We'll have to say I might have been a little intimidated talking to Dan. <laughs> Here's a guy that's interviewed Paul McCartney, Smokey Robinson, Smokey Robinson. Bonnie Raitt. He made Kenny Loggins made cry. Kenny Loggins <laughs> cry. <laughs> so, I mean, put that on your resume. <laughs> exactly. But, you know, I'm telling you, you know, you're not going to meet funnier people than uh, Dan Hurst. He, he's hysterical. Anyone who puts on their LinkedIn that they went from college from 1900, yes, 1900 to 1983 is a funny person. You know, yeah. so I mean, we, we had a good time. Uh, but you know, when we got down to, you know, the end, it was really interesting, because like a lot of our guests, you know, Dr. Michelle Robin, uh, Tabitha Scott, Caroline Markle Hammond, and Danny Bader. You see these people that have great public personas that are just, just, they look fantastic, but all of them dealt with mental health issues or depression or contemplating suicide. And Dan admitted it to that at the end. So, you know, it just, it brings the light that, you know, people, you know, you don't know what happens in the background or what happened in their past. And, Everybody sees a successful side. What did you get out of the episode? Oh, man. I have been looking forward to this episode for weeks, ever since I first brought him up to you. Obviously, Dan and I have a history. We go back a long, long ways working at the church together in Raytown. And so I just knew I knew he was going to be a perfect guest, and uh, he did not fail in that. I wanted to personally say, because he's never heard me say this before, but when he listens to this podcast, it'll be the first time he's ever heard this. Dan has been an inspiration to me in my fledgling voiceover career. I haven't done a lot of voiceover, but I've dabbled in it a little bit. And uh, I've always thought, well, if somebody like Dan can do it, I, you know, that's not hard to do. The, the thing that Dan has that Joe will never have is he has the voice. The voice, 100%. Is that that amazing? This this Don LaFontaine, James Earl Jones, Sam Elliott voice is just amazing. I could literally listen to Dan just, I could listen to him read the phone book and it would be just a work work of art. It's, It's an amazing voice. But I'll tell you the thing that got me the most it didn't surprise me, but it really stuck out, was when you asked him, when you left corporate radio to go up to strike out on your own, and your question was, what was your biggest surprise? And he didn't even think about it. He didn't miss a beat. Immediately, he said, how satisfied I am with his new career, being let go from the, from the corporate line. Yeah, and, being on his own. Yeah, being on his own. He was so satisfied that what he wished KUDL had fired him 10 years earlier. And I've heard him say that before, even before this interview, and, and it's on his LinkedIn profile, of all things, right. that I wish they would have fired me 10 years earlier. It, it made Entercom, uh, I think, who was the owner yeah. of KUDL at the time, feel really good, I bet. And, but they and, probably didn't even notice. And what would you, I'm, I'm sure that that went out in the in the news at the time. I'm, I, I don't remember it, but I'm, I'm sure that's come out since then. Think about if you were an upper level executive in a corporation and you had an employee that was walking out the door and saying that about your corporation. And it doesn't even have to be about radio. Let's, let's, let's take radio out of the mix. But 
Say, for instance, you, you are in the business of making widgets of some sort, and the person that leaves on an exit interview or something like that says, you guys don't even know what you're creating. You don't even know the product that you're making. You think that you're in the business of making widgets, when in fact, what it should be is you're in the business of making relationships, of building relationships with people, of connecting with people. And he said that the radio executives didn't get that. They thought that that they were creating essentially a very expensive jukebox just to play music, when in fact what Dan was trying to do is he was trying to connect people. He said this radio is all about content. He was trying to build content and create content and deliver it and the upper management of the of the radio corporations didn't even see that. So I think that is a, a, a lesson that any C-suite executive needs to look at is if you've got an employee that thinks that about your corporation, that thinks that you are so far disconnected on what your corporation should be doing, I, I think that's an area that you need to be you need to be concerned about. And he saw the demise of the radio industry. Like mm -hmm. he had the the foresight to realize when it's being run by, you know, finance and, you know, and we're just selling, you know, to see how cheap we can run things and, you know, run 16 songs in a row with no interaction. You're not building community. You're not building relationships. You're just trying to sell ads. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you're running 16 songs in a row, you know what you call that? You call that Pandora, call that Spotify. And why, why do that? You know, they're already doing that. There's already a hundred different uh, websites doing that. Why don't you do something else? And one of the things that he said was that is why talk radio is still surviving somehow because they do know that they need to build that relationship with people. Music radio is just about dead. Uh, yep. And he and he saw that coming. But God bless him that he's doing as well as he is selling bidet buddies and um, things bidet like that. Bidet buddies and the Ultra Bowl. Yeah, and he won the Oscar for his trailer, the Golden Trailer Award for uh, Winning Time, the Lakers uh, dynasty on HBO. And, and so never even go. knew it. You know, it was just a, it was just a gig for him. So, Joe, any Joe, any leadership uh, lessons you want to impart on the audience based on Dan's episode? Yeah, actually, today we're going to go back to that great philosopher Dwight Schrute who one time said, there are three things that you never turn your back on. Bears, men that you have wronged, and a dominant male turkey during mating season. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.